you used to be able to buy a product called news and it was news and now you can buy opinions with some facts mixed in and you have to double check a lot of stuff. I think there's a legitimacy shortage. Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast, where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Bern Hobart, the mind behind The Diff, a Substack newsletter that covers inflections in finance and tech. We discuss the state of legitimacy and the 2020 election, how our perceptions of legitimacy is changing, and whether we are poised for a legitimacy reset. I received a text this morning from a friend of mine who said, Fox News finally gave Alaska to Trump. And then I said, do you know what the current total is for the electoral votes? Because every source that we look at is all different. That is a very unusual thing, wouldn't you say, in today's landscape where the media might call the winner of the election, but you actually don't even know which source to trust? So what I thought was really interesting ahead of the election itself was this incident where the New York Times had a tweet. What they said was the role of declaring the winner of a presidential election in the U.S. falls to the news media. Here's how it will work. And then they linked to how it'll work. The reaction people had was this is not actually what the Constitution says. The media do not, in fact, decide who won the presidential election. We have a whole electoral college. We have a whole voting process, et cetera. But in one sense, the Times was actually right in that the way that you know who the president is, is that you hear about it from the news. And the person you treat as president is the person the media treat as president. You're not going to audit the vote count. You're not actually counting up the votes. In fact, if you are looking at vote totals in real time, you're much more likely to look on a site like nytimes.com or cnn.com, not to go to the individual state pages and see their vote totals. So I think it is actually an accurate way to formalize the system to say that the media do declare the winner and it gets to the question of legitimacy. Like, how do we know who won? I think part of it, too, is the fact that we're all looking at different media sources, don't you think? And it's funny because I I consider myself in light of what I'm seeing across the political spectrum. I'm a moderate and I'm seeing this huge split, and even I don't really know which sources to trust. In a lot of media and online communities, there's this evaporative cooling effect where if you tolerate some views that are outside the normal Overton window, the normal people all leave, and then your site gets more and more extreme. I think Scott Alexander articulated this as why every site that spins up to replace Reddit because Reddit bans some community Even though the site is ostensibly about letting everyone express every viewpoint, it ends up expressing the most extreme form of that community's views. And that seems like a pretty expected dynamic that if these views are unpopular and people actually don't like them, then those people will select out of ever paying attention to those viewpoints. And mainstream social media companies have also gotten a lot more willing to to censor content. For them, you have a couple of things going on. One is that Politics just used to be this bimodal distribution of political views, but it was very overlapping. 
And now the two midpoints of partisanship, if you just treat it as a left-right spectrum, those two midpoints are spreading out, which means that any neutral site looks increasingly biased to the average person because it's either way to the left of the news sources they typically read when they look for news, or it's way to the right of those sources. And that has less to do with the sites themselves, more to do with the changes in how polarized the average person is. Or I was going to kind of say where the dynamic here, it seems, is as I've spoken to more people about kind of, it's almost like these alien sightings, right? Where they see it a few times and they're like, oh, it's not just in one state. It's not, you know, in one county, it's actually way more widespread. And there's almost like that line, you know, from the Matrix, which is like, why do your eyes hurt? Because you've never used them before. And even in this case, there's somehow this latent appeal to authority argument where it's that if you bring up evidence, that somebody else hasn't reported on, it's not real evidence. It could be that there is this fact and it's there, right? It's, it could be like this a priori argument of like two plus two equals four, just because no one said that doesn't mean it's false. But if CNN didn't say it's true, then somehow it doesn't exist. And if you talk about anything else that's not governed by these authorities, then somehow you are the one making it up and all those things don't count. Okay, I'm glad you brought up evidence because I think everyone's just trying to get to the bottom of this. And I remember seeing a chart of how they tracked all the mail-in ballots that came in, and there was a huge dump of like hundreds of thousands of votes that only went to Biden. And they were saying that this looks suspicious because it didn't follow Benford's law. So I'm wondering if you could, you know, explain a little bit about what Benford's law is and how it applies in this case. I wondered idly if Benford's law would apply to election results. And it actually turns out that Benford's law assumes many more orders of magnitude than you actually see in election results. It's sometimes used in finance to detect accounting fraud. You very rarely see it in practice when someone is, say, shorting a stock and writing a report and saying, we think this company is lying. And it's because we'd expect more of their financial statements to have numbers that start with one. Benford's law is the bizarre but true observation that the number one is a very common leading digit. I believe Benford originally discovered it because he was looking at a table of logarithms in a book, and he noticed that the pages for the ones were much more dog-eared and stained and worn than the pages for the sevens, eights, and nines. But when people are trying to detect a possible fraud algorithmically, they do use Benford's law sometimes. So it's, it's never a smoking gun, but it's often indicative of something weird. But that's not true for precincts because precinct sizes are designed to be pretty similar to one another. So it's just, it's not one of the phenomena that should follow Benford's law. And there's not really any central clearinghouse where people are getting together and saying, if you're going to run the numbers and try to detect fraud, here are, here are places you should look, here are places you shouldn't look, like here's, here's something that looks shady but is actually unsurprising. One of the things that a lot of election analysts said beforehand, which is true, is you should expect Trump's numbers to look better on election day and Biden's numbers to look better over the next few days. And that is just due to the mechanics of whose votes got counted when. Just for the record, in this conversation, are you talking from the point of view that you're convinced Joe Biden is legitimately the president-elect? So I tend to be a pretty efficient markets guy, so I think that it's it's the highest probability I don't think it's logically impossible that something shady happened, but so far the evidence has been really mixed, but I I don't know how widespread that is. And that's, that's the other thing that you'd have to consider with fraud is that it has to actually be pretty extensive. 
Now, there is some historical evidence that that has happened in the past. Like there were a couple of elections in Chicago in the 80s, where I think in one of them, it was determined that something like 7% of the votes cast were not cast legitimately. So like this stuff, it does happen. And it's unclear when and why it would have stopped. But it's also not clear that it happens at scale. I know you've started reading the Robert Caro series on Lyndon Johnson, right? And one of the most notable parts for people who haven't read the book is to what extent can you lie, cheat, beg, borrow, and steal to essentially become governor, senator, congressman, president, and how quickly people forget. There's a line from the book, right? Once you have all the votes, just sit on the box. And so America does have a huge history of fraud, but at the same time, any fraud now that's not supporting this center-left, pro-corporate America, we all have this neoliberal agenda almost, is something that is like so crazy, right? It's okay if the Russians hack the election, but somehow if someone inside America tried to hack the elections, that's just unbelievable, right? Yeah, although it is it is worth noting that the machine politicians like they're they're not really center left neoliberals like they are they are not super excited about making the world safe for google um they tend to have much more concrete localized concerns there would have to be this weird culture clash between people who are gaming the outcome to elect the right mayor who's going to let the right property developer buy this particular lot at a, at a very favorable price or whatever. Like having that person coordinate with Team Biden, it's a little bit weird to to imagine. Like I, I, again, it's not logically impossible, but you would need some explanatory value there. Like basically, it ends up being one of those arguments that has to prove a lot more about the world to to prove that it's accurate. So you have to believe that there's been this system in place for a really long time, that it's been in place in multiple cities, that basically all of the big blue cities in all the swing states, but not such cities elsewhere, um, that they all coordinated to do this. So it ends up being a pretty good-sized conspiracy. But To zoom out, I think that the 2016 election was kind of like the first shakeup in terms of legitimacy with the polling and media. And throughout the past four years with the Trump administration, one of the things I think that he really did for the country was pull back the curtain on media manipulation, really. So I think this 2020 election, we're faced with a lot of questions in terms of legitimacy and media, and social media, and even democracy. Some people are saying, well, maybe this is where we plateau with democracy, and maybe we're going to violate certain things in the Constitution because uh, the state thinks this is the way the nation should go, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I do think that that has been one of the big changes of the last four years. I think that you can very much look at Trump as a reality TV president. You can sort of look at the Obama administration as being a really hardcore live action role playing session for people who love the West Wing. I think one of the striking things about the Trump administration is that the production values are a lot lower than they have been for previous administrations. Like going back to to Obama, to to Bush, to Clinton, these people, they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how something would be received. It seems like a lot of the, the press releases and announcements they made were heavily workshopped. Trump is a lot more transparent. And I, I do mean that both in the sense of 
transparent behavior in the negative sense of tacky and transparent behavior in the positive sense of being very open. His Twitter feed is sort of like if the Nixon tapes were broadcast live every night. Like he's he's giving us this unfiltered view into his thoughts. Sometimes he'll think up a policy and then he enacts it through Twitter or he fires someone, not even by DMing them, but by at mentioning them. So he doesn't do the same kind of really high finesse planning. I mean, the Trump administration doesn't do the same kind of high finesse planning. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, you know, there's somehow this gap between people who think that legitimacy in this way is only given to people who are very serious. But if you're not super serious all the time, you're not legitimate. You have to act like a grown up. You have to act like Obama, always be clean shaven, you know, speak when spoken to kind of. And then you have this diametric opposite, right? It's almost like this immeasurable force that people are now seeing. But I almost kind of wonder, like, what is in this case, the top-down approach of something like Obama or something like, you know, H.W. Bush, right? Very established people. And then this almost return to like this Reagan or even before that, right? I almost think there are a lot of parallels between Hamilton and Trump or even uh, JFK in some way. This almost like larger than life iconoclast personality that's like destroying what people think of this milk toast world that they thought they lived in. And now we have this brave new world that people are just kind of getting used to. And so our perceptions of this, what is legitimate, what's fake, is changing. It actually might be helpful to, to step back a moment and try to define legitimacy, because we've, we've used the term a lot. And I think I previously treated legitimacy as a default. And legitimacy, in one sense, is just the extent to which the, the formal on-paper chain of command is actually reflected in real-world behavior. And then there's also legitimacy through mission. I think the whole question of legitimacy has been on my mind because now when I watch the news, I don't believe anything that they say. My default mode is skepticism. And it really has become a new mode that started recently. It wasn't like that before, probably because the polling seemed to be so off in 2016. And then um, seeing all these investigations uh, with the Russia collusion and things that didn't materialize and it's crazy to me how half of the country sees one story and the other half sees the other. So it's really hard to determine legitimacy when you have two movies going on the same screen. I tend to take the, the more Bayesian view of the media will not be 100% accurate. Individual journalists and editors are as prone to buying into a narrative as I am. We're all human, and it's not like they're going to perfectly understand a story. They're also in the middle of being manipulated. Um, and this happens all the time. I wouldn't say the hyper-skepticism view or the adversarial view is accurate. Like the, Journalists are not, most of them, not trying deliberately to produce dishonest propaganda. You actually don't know if that's what they're trying to do, is basically like the question. I mean, whenever I see a larger narrative about the fall of liberal democracies with legitimacy and the media's hand in it, there there is a motive for them to want to peddle it. But let me elaborate on this point also, where like one thing we've talked about a lot is kind of looking at all these other past reigns of China, for instance, right? And we spoke a bit about, you know, even the Confucian saying, which is like, how, how do you respect your family? How do you respect the state, your siblings, even those under you? And so there's that top-down control. And so they can have these crazy laws, essentially, right? You can put people in camps, you can make them do all sorts of things that you only see in 1930s Germany. But then with us, it's like, there's almost no way to know anything. 
And so how do you govern, right? How do you do anything when no one seemingly knows anything? So that is that is a question for people doing governing. If we're asking what does the average person need to know, like I, I, I just think following the news is actually, unless it's part of your job, is actually just not that useful a way to spend your time. But I guess the argument is if if journalists are actively deceiving you, a that means that it's comparatively easy to fact check them. And there have been cases where some article gets just ruthlessly, brutally fact checked, but it's actually not that common. And then another thing is if they're if they're actively lying to you, that has to be coordinated as well. You you have to settle on one lie, and that means everyone has to be in on it. But a lot of times the stuff that gets fact-checked, it gets fact-checked within ideological lines. So I, I, I think it probably has more to do with human nature than than with any kind of top-down situation. That said, it is it is very important to keep it in mind and um, very important to, to either detox yourself or at least have like a balanced level of toxins from reading hyper-partisan media in both directions. Would you consider yourself a journalist? And also, do you see your Substack newsletter, The Diff, as an, an alternative media source? I don't do very much original reporting, but a lot of what I do is aggregating other news and um, in some cases trying to provide commentary that I think identifies what is missing from understanding a story or tying together several unrelated stories and finding what the theme is between them. That's not quite journalism. It's actually a lot closer to the tradition of trading desk commentary in the financial world. That's kind of close to what I'm doing, where I'm trying to give a useful value-added rundown of what's happening in the world. I I very strongly de-emphasize anything that's going to be heavily covered. So I think I mentioned that the election was going to happen in the newsletter, but I didn't say anything too significant about the results. So that's one way that separates me from from journalism and makes me not an alternative news source is I'm sort of assuming that everyone knows roughly what the news is and I'm adding commentary on top of that. What's something that I don't see very often is that there's this layer you need on top to parse this stuff. Not many people have the bandwidth, I think. You know, they're working, they're doing other things and they still want to be aware, right? They want to know what's going on in different markets and who's lying to them. I don't know what you would call that, but I think that's where I see Substack and all these other players, uh, even in the podcasting space, right? I think that's something that some of the best creators do, which is like, how do you tell people what's real and what's fake in a way? You bring up a couple of interesting points. I'll, I'll try to hit them all. One is just the bandwidth question. So I do have the unfair advantage that I write close to full time. I can justify spending a lot more time reading and I can read a little more more broadly than someone who's doing this as a hobby. And there's this concept that probably other people have observed, but I, I call it the convexity of expertise, which is just that as you learn more about a given topic or a given set of topics, you do find more connections between them and that accelerates your learning. It improves your retention. You can think of this with history where if you start reading a history book at random, it's just a collection of unconnected dates. And then as you read more history in the same period or in the same place, things start to fit into context a lot more and you start asking yourself questions about what else was going on at that time and how that affected the events that you're hearing about. So that convexity does mean that I have an unfair advantage in reading a lot where it is actually going to provide me with more material per hour of reading time. Do you think that that's the next wave of media? is this layer of context, like people to analyze and add context to what we're seeing in the news. Like, I feel like that's like a new area of media, no? 
It could be, but I don't know how much room there is for that. I think there's a lot more room for hyper-specialized people who are spinning up a Substack-based trade magazine on a very narrow domain, but a domain where a lot of people will pay a decent amount of money to be up-to-date and informed. I don't know how much room there is for really high-level commentary because people can fall into the trap of just providing a partisan party line on whatever the news of the day is. They can fall into the trap of, we're just going to give you this rote list of everything that happened today. Um, that that stuff for me is more raw material. And part of what I'm trying to do is um, trying to write some history in advance. So not just a list of events that happened, but a list of significant inflection points that will look more important five or 10 years from now than they look at the time that they happen. So that's that's a pretty aggressive filter. That's like that's a standard that it, I know is a good standard because it's not a standard I can hit reliably. But there are definitely times where something will happen and I will have written a piece on it like a year or two before it happened. I think what's interesting is when we were talking earlier, we were saying how Obama had this live action role play persona that made us buy into this presidential presentation. And then you have someone like Donald Trump, who is a reality TV show president. And now we're going back to Biden, very scripted way of presenting himself. But it's almost at this point, a really tough pill to swallow because the house is already burning. And I feel like 2020 can be summed up as that meme of the cartoon dog with the hat drinking coffee with the house burning. And he's like, I'm fine. I feel like that's kind of where we're at right now. And I don't know if legitimacy has fluctuated all this much throughout American history, but if it had gotten down to this point, I wonder if there's a way to get it back. Are we really going to trust in the institutions and the systems again? Or is this just the edge where everything's going to fracture from this point on and there's no way for it to come back together? So I think you're right. The cartoon dog is is maybe one of the one of the defining images of 2020, and then the other one is the the series of Thomas Cole paintings, The Course of Empire, where you go from just savage wilderness to you have a city to the city is being destroyed to it's just ruins. We're somewhere in that cycle, but it is a cycle. It does reverse. So that huge surge in legitimacy in the U.S. in the middle of the 20th century, you can attribute that to the Great Depression and World War II. If you look at the Wikipedia article on presidents and their military service, every time there's a really big war, every president for the next couple decades served in that war in some capacity. The war do reset status crises. COVID, it's tricky to think about what is it, what does it mean that we don't have this reset, that post- COVID or like intra-COVID, we elect someone who's actually been in office for almost five decades. That seems kind of weird. One possibility, which is maybe the most disturbing, is that it's actually not that big a crisis relative to some of the other crises that the country has been through. And it may be that we're still such a rich country that we can actually withstand vastly more pain than we thought. There's this Adam Smith line that I like where someone was talking to Adam Smith and was referring to the 13 colonies rebelling. And he said that if we let them go, we let them become independent, it'll be the ruin of our country. And Smith's response was, there's a great deal of ruin in a country. And there's a great deal of ruin in a country. Apparently, we have more than one pandemic's worth of ruin. 
in regard to liberal democracy, wouldn't you say that with the pandemic, the American people have shown that they're okay with the government telling them what to do? And also with this election, half the country might be okay with turning a blind eye to certain fraudulent behavior to achieve a greater good, quote unquote. Well, I would also add to that just that it's maybe that's not even the most damning thing. It could even be that people are super okay about giving up their constitutional rights. Like, it's not even the government. It's almost like 1984, which is like, the people don't even know it, right? They just willingly give up their rights. They're happy to stay inside and listen to the technocracy and just give up their rights and also for everyone else. It's kind of like, if you don't listen to me and you don't listen to science and believe science, whatever that means, you're part of the problem. And we're living in that kind of dichotomy of like, do you want your rights or are you okay just giving them up? Well, some of it is that the U.S. is just not competent as an authoritarian state. And as China demonstrated, you can actually deal with a pandemic through extremely authoritarian means, and they work. Taiwan demonstrates that you can have this sort of authoritarian legacy and be a democratic country and can still deal with the pandemic very effectively. But if you look at the details of how that works, there's a lot of very tightly enforced quarantines. Like there's some story that I read where someone flew into Taiwan and because they'd arrived from a country that had an active epidemic, they were told to quarantine in, in one apartment and their location was tracked through their cell phone. And when the phone ran out of power, within a few minutes, there were police at the door asking what was going on. The U.S., we don't like the idea of cops coming to your door and saying, why did you why did you briefly stop checking in with your digital panopticon parole officer? But also, it's just not the kind of thing that the U.S. would execute especially well. We are apparently a whole lot better at researching drugs. We're, we're pretty good at fiscal stimulus to, to offset the fact that some businesses are non-viable right now, so some jobs can't exist right now. But I think it illustrates that state capacity is not just this linear scale, but there are different aspects of state capacity and just different cultural preferences that make it more or less difficult to deal with the pandemic. Even though there is that authoritarian dynamic to dealing with the pandemic, the U.S. is just not that competent at being authoritarian, which is, as an American, I, I feel like that's great. Like living in a country where we have so little authoritarian legacy that we just can't get our act together when there's a, a chance to be authoritarian for a good reason, that's actually great. Most of the time, you don't want your government to be good at that stuff. So maybe it is a state capacity question rather than a pure freedom versus tyranny question. What is the state of legitimacy, the state of media, and the state of liberal democracy? Is it an optimistic outlook or pessimistic? I am excited by the fact that as the founding CEOs get older, as they start thinking about their legacy and their future, they start building more ambitious stuff. Like It's not a coincidence that there are two separate tycoons who are both running their own space programs, that other wealthy, powerful tech people are trying to cure death. That kind of thing can continue. And as big tech companies start to see themselves competing with the U.S. government for the status of most legitimate transformative organization, you could actually imagine them doing more of that. So you can treat things like SpaceX and Blue Origin as analogous to the U.S. versus Soviet space race, where it's a set of institutions trying to prove that they can accomplish something the other institution can't do. I, I thought it was really striking that tech companies were very early to respond to the, the virus. And I think... When you have these crises, one of the things that happens is that 
the people and organizations that are very adaptable and that are smart and that plan very far ahead, they scoop up a disproportionate amount of power because they get stuff on the cheap. They recruit people who have lost their jobs. They're very visibly solve problems. Like Amazon was a lifesaver for a lot of people. There were there were things like some kinds of PPE or you know food that you you couldn't get, but Amazon would deliver them to you. So these companies have gotten more important, more trusted, and it's it's good for the world if the institutions that the smartest people gravitate to are also getting more social deference, more legitimacy. State of democracy, not great, but I think the importance is probably exaggerated. So that that ends up meaning that. From election to election, it really looks like a huge, huge deal. And then the practical results are are not nearly as big as the hype would indicate. One of the things that I wrote about recently was kind of how so many people are flocking toward big tech as like their own republic. So essentially, you know, you could talk about Apple being almost run by like a Israeli counterinsurgents operation. Amazon is, you know, the biggest employer in Seattle right now. And they're building their own city in these enclaves and wherever they are. Cupertino is essentially run by Tim Cook, who famously won't even take a meeting with the mayor of Cupertino because it's not worth his time. And so I kind of see like who did the most in 2020. A lot of it was these corporations, right? And so people know that. I mean, the people aren't stupid. Like they can see Amazon delivered the stuff, the PB materials. Hopefully more and more of the respect or like the actual power of what was once media and what was once the government is now shifting probably even as tech tycoons like you said you know buy media corporations so maybe that is not such a pessimistic thing after all considering just the amount of surplus to give back to people yeah so i think it's definitely great that these companies are getting more powerful the executives are ambitious they want to make their mark on the world I don't think Mark Zuckerberg's dream is that by the time he dies, Facebook is slightly bigger and time spent per user goes up or something. Like I would assume he wants to do much more historically significant things. Um, He likes naming his kids after Roman emperors. That's maybe a sign that there's more ambition there. What would you say is the biggest takeaway for someone to get from all these topics? Like what would you say is the thread between these different ideas? I think there's a legitimacy shortage. There was a time when most people trusted what they read in the news and they had pretty good reasons to trust it. That most people trusted the government. They had good reasons to do that. They thought their employer would probably do the right thing for them. And uh, they had good reasons to think so. And I think a lot of that is not true. And in an indirect way that that makes us all worse off, not just in the, in the proximate way that you used to be able to buy a product called news and it was news. And now you can buy opinions with some facts mixed in and you have to double check a lot of stuff. And unless you're extremely attuned to your own biases, you end up missing the stuff that is just designed by people who agree with you to mislead you into agreeing with them and yourself even more than you already did. Like that's that's bad, but I think it comes down to a legitimacy shortage. And I think cultivating legitimacy is actually something more people should try to do. The political system always makes it seem like you could change the world if the right person won. But maybe the actually effective thing to do is be the right person first and then try to focus on who the winner could be. So it it goes back to what you said about reading old books. I think that's an extremely valuable thing to do. It's just very valuable to cultivate your understanding of history and of the human condition. And having strong political opinions should maybe be conditioned on that first. So I try not to have strong political opinions. It's hard, but I try. And um, 
I think becoming worthy of being politically opinionated is a good goal of our mindset. And if everyone had that goal and pursued it assiduously, that we would probably end up electing people who are a lot more competent and effective, and um, they'd get a whole lot more done. We're still in the fog of war, so it's hard to see where we can go from here. Will the mainstream media regain its credibility? What does the future of democracy look like as the big tech companies continue to grow as institutions on par with the government? Only time will tell. Thanks for listening. We hope you like this episode. To subscribe to Burns' newsletter, The Diff, visit diff.substack.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Bern Hobart. That's B-Y-R-N-E Hobart. And don't forget to follow us too. Until next time, stay curious.